And our passage this morning is Hosea chapter 4. We are in the prophet Hosea for the fourth week. A strange story. God's prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel is told to marry a prostitute who breaks his heart continually for some 25 plus years. And we've been following the story of Hosea and his very unhappy home life and relationship. And now we're going to see it again from the perspective of God's marriage to His people. And much like the Lectio reading we just heard from the prophet Micah, it's a very grim chapter, at least as we begin it. But hopefully by the end we'll see and hear and find the light in it as well. Young Christians, young disciples and theologians, I want you to listen to see if you can hear and then explain what repentance is. We talk about repentance a lot, but now it's your turn to see if you can hear how we describe it and can you describe it back to us. What is repentance? This is the good news, though at first it doesn't seem it, from Hosea, the prophet of heartbreak. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children." The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They're greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom and wine and new wine which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they've left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because the shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery." I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives... Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. 
When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind has wrapped them in its wings. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Pray with me. Oh Lord Jesus, we can be ashamed of every sacrifice we have ever brought. But the sacrifice of Jesus is a sacrifice without shame. It is perfectly pleasing. And it's in His sacrifice that we stand and not our own. Because we could twist and pervert the good gifts you give us as well as anybody. We're expert at it, just as the people we read of in this passage. And you tell us of ourselves, along with the Israelites who lived so long ago. And we thank you that your gospel is so full and so thorough that it's even willing to speak to us in hard words. But not only hard words. Don't just speak to us from hard words. Give us the sweet and gentle and tender words. Once we have been broken because of the sacrifices we bring, then heal us with the sacrifice that Jesus presents with our names attached to it. And for all of this, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, after everything we've been through in Hosea, God giving Himself as the saving one, and then God showing Himself as the pursuing husband, and then God the overspending redeemer. Now we have God showing up in chapter 4 in a very different way. In chapter 4, God comes as the divorce attorney. The kind who puts Himself up on billboards all over town and on the sides of buses. The kind that takes out full page ads in the back of the phone book. In chapter 4, Israel and all people like them are served with divorce papers. Chapter 4 is divorce court. And before we even know what's happening, we're in the courtroom. And the Holy One comes sweeping in. And He's too well put together. In a perfectly tailored suit, smiling too much, too confident, wearing gold chains and too many rings on his fingers. And he winks at the judge who looks just like him, only wearing a judge's robe. And we realize the Holy One's playing both roles. He's the divorce attorney and the judge and the plaintiff, a third role. And the attorney throws his briefcase up on the table pops the latches and lifts the lid and shuffles his papers and says, I have a controversy with Israel, a dispute to be settled. And we wonder if we have a hope in heaven of making it out of here in one piece. In the New Testament, there's a story where the Pharisees, the religious leaders, come to Jesus and they test Him. They try to trap Him and they say, Is it true... Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? This isn't God divorcing his people for any reason. This is God suing for divorce for the only reason there is. I have loved her perfectly and she has not loved me at all. He says it at the end of verse 1. There is no faithfulness with this people. No steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God. At the time... 
Yahweh, the living God, comes and files for divorce. Israel is living at the tail end of a golden age that's lasted 50 years, give or take some, under Jeroboam II, who was the greatest king of the northern kingdom. The divided monarchy put Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And now living under Jeroboam II, life has been good. Jeroboam was a shrewd businessman. He realized that his kingdom sat right along the trade routes running from the far east into the rising west. And he taxed the trade caravans passing through. It was easy revenue. And then he built a merchant fleet that blanketed the Mediterranean, selling and buying and trading. And with all the money he was taking in, he built a department of defense, a powerful army, a solid military complex. Because let's face it, Israel has some technological catching up to do. All of Israel's hostile neighbors are living in the Iron Age. And Israel is lagging behind in the Bronze Age. And as far as weaponry goes, bronze doesn't stand up to iron. So Jeroboam brings his armies up to speed. And meanwhile, to the north, The brutal Assyrian war machine, Israel's primary enemy, it's ground to a halt. Assyria, the empire, is racked with all this political infighting. And so while Israel grows wealthier and stronger and more confident, Assyria is on the decline. And for 50 years, this has never happened in Israel's history, for 50 years, Israel beat up on its neighbors, uncontested. Israel spent 50 years seizing lands and taking territory and expanding its borders, and everybody in Israel got a taste for the good life. There were jobs and entrepreneurial opportunities for the masses, and everyone had to buy low and sell high. And wealth became king. And you know what that means. When liberty and wealth mix, they give birth to an ugly love child. Arrogance. It was cutthroat life in Israel. And the national motto became, ah, it's nothing personal, it's just business. Mortgages were raised and interest rates hiked and widows and orphans were foreclosed on. They were evicted and put out on the streets and kicked to the curbside. And people chasing the Israelite dream and falling short of it had to sell themselves into slavery just to survive. While all this is going on, the prophet Amos, Hosea's predecessor in the prophetic game tells of rich women living in the capital city of Israel, in the city of Samaria, and he calls them the cows of Bashan. That's not a compliment. What he was saying was, they were fat and opulent and gluttonous, and they did nothing but nag their husbands all day to make more money, and it didn't matter if they came by it honestly, as long as there was more of it to gorge themselves on. And the greed and self-interest in Israel has gotten so bad that we have this grotesque national portrait in verse 2. They're swearing. People claiming to be truthful. 
but it's followed with lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds. Nothing is sacred with these people. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. That's life in Israel. But it's not the life God has called Israel to. And it's not the life He has given to His people. And His people are showing themselves to be just like Gomer, Hosea's prostitute wife. Entirely unfaithful, unsatisfied, driven by dark appetites, mistaken for love, but nothing like love. And then Yahweh serves His bride the divorce papers. Because at about the time Hosea is prophesying in Israel, God sends Jonah the prophet up to Assyria to wake Assyria out of its hibernation. And the Assyrians repent. You remember the story? At the end of it, Jonah the prophet, who has had arguably one of the most successful ministries ever, goes to the outskirts of the city and he sits on top of a hill. And he's eaten alive with anger like a plant being devoured by a worm. And his complaint against God is, it's not fair. You've given repentance to our enemies and not to us. And I know what you're going to do. You're going to use them to crush us. Which is exactly what happens three years after Hosea stops prophesying. But Jonah's complaint doesn't hold any water. It is fair of God to do this. Because meanwhile, back at home, Hosea and his philandering wife and their scandalous children are supposed to be an ugly realization of what Israel has made herself. Hosea is calling the Israelites to repentance, but they've plugged their ears. They've put their fingers in their ears. No one's listening. They like what they've become. So the date for a hearing is set. Divorce is coming. I remember when my parents told me they were divorcing. I was 12 years old. And it felt like someone sucker punched me and took the wind right out of me. My mom broke the news that broke my heart. We sat on the staircase and cried. And when my dad came home that evening, I remember sitting on the couch with him and he put his arm around me and he held me close. But like men, we didn't have any words to pass between us. So we just sat there. He held me and I wept. And that evening I concocted a plan. I would call my grandmother. Because when she was a little girl, her parents had divorced, and she could tell my parents how horrible it was. She could talk them out of it. It was a desperate play, but it might just work. It didn't. My grandmother didn't talk my parents out of their plans. She talked me out of my hope. And that same desperation bleeds through this chapter. Can anything be done to stop this? 
Is there no hope to hold on to? It seems throughout the whole chapter, God has made up his mind. But it's important to see why. It's important to see that life in Israel has become corrupt because the worship of Israel was corrupt. Through all of this, God blames the priests. He says, they're stumblers and they don't walk straight and they trip all over themselves. And the prophets are no better. Not Hosea, of course, but other self-proclaimed prophets. Men who wanted the title, but not the work of being a prophet. And in verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They don't know who I am. They don't know what I'm like. They don't know what my heart loves. You've let them forget priests. The priests. This was their job. To lead the people in knowing this God and loving this God. If they weren't doing what they were given to do, what exactly were they doing? They were taking the good sacrifices for themselves. You remember, the priests get to eat the sacrifices that are offered on the altar. They had this endless buffet line going. They didn't teach the people godliness love of the living God because the more sin of the people, the more sacrifices had to be offered and the better cuts of meat were coming to the priests' tables. And in verse 14, they were running a lucrative temple prostitution ring. The priests had made themselves into gangsters and playboys and lots of men, lots of young men in Israel were saying, when I grow up, I want to be a priest. And their fathers were saying, well, of course you do, son. Who wouldn't want to be a priest? In in verse 7, the they at the beginning of that verse is the priests. And according to the verse, there were many volunteers for the priesthood. There are more priests in Israel than ever before. So why was there not more godliness in Israel than ever before? Because the priests didn't care about godliness. And the people didn't care about it either. Like people, like priests. And then verse 9 says... My people even inquire of a piece of wood. My people pray to carvings. And they do divination. They throw their walking sticks into the air and they let them fall to the ground. And they try to read the way they lie there. They try to pull mystical secrets out of their walking staffs. Isn't that stupid, Yahweh saying? I'm the God who speaks the words of life. And my people are listening to sticks. And they sacrifice on the tops of hills and mountains. The sacrifice of Baal was offered in the high places on hills and mountains. These aren't the sacrifices of the living and holy God. And they sacrifice under oak trees and poplar trees and terebinths. I give my people love and life and my people worship the trees for their shade. And in verse 15, he mocks their worship and he says it isn't worship at all and he doesn't accept it. The temple in Israel was named Beth-El, the house of God. And here, Yahweh tauntingly renames it. He calls it Beth-Avon, the house of evil. The priests 
Do not lead the people to me who loves them. The priests feed on their sin. They're greedy for the iniquity of my people, the sickness that kills my people. And in verse 14, he says, A people without understanding shall come to ruin. Ephraim, Israel, is joined to idols. Israel is married to idols. Leave Israel alone. Let Israel have all the idols Israel wants. I'm done. But the strongest argument for divorce comes in verse 16. I'll read it and then I'll paraphrase it for you. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Did you hear it? What he's saying is, I wanted to marry a lamb. I got a heifer instead. That's insulting, but maybe not in the way you think. It's insulting because heifers are stubborn and willful and immovable and unresponsive. And lambs are beautiful because they're fragile and needy. And the one thing God wants from you is the one thing we refuse to give Him, our need. So we trust in wealth and in politics and in invented spiritualities and theologies of all kinds with just enough Bibles sprinkled through them to blind us to their utter Christlessness. And where that's not enough, we carve countless idols in our hearts. And we just won't give to our God our need. My daughter has this fascination with how my friends and I were punished when we were growing up. The best I can tell, it's a grade school version of a human rights watch. She's trying to make sure that the way we punish her doesn't violate an international justice code. And the story she loves is the story of my friend Owen Dunstan, who when he got in trouble, his father didn't rage and storm and yell or smack him around or ground him even. When Owen got in trouble, his father made him strip all of his clothes off and he had to run around the block in his underwear. This went on through high school. (laughs) Owen, nearly naked, running at top speed, through the neighborhood. Owen got fast. (laughs) He ran like a gazelle. But in the trial here, we're stripped down and we can't outrun what we're up against. There isn't any escape. How can I have you now, God says? How can I lead you to a broad pasture to feed you, to please you, to keep you safe, to give myself to you, to do good to you? You don't want that. This is a hard, stern chapter. And you can't read it without losing hope if you don't hold on to the three chapters that we've already been through, the three chapters we've already read. You can't read chapter 4 alone. This chapter tells us Yahweh has a case for divorce. The Holy One has a case for divorce. 
But the previous three chapters tell us the Holy One has a heart for remarriage. The one who has every right to divorce us longs to remarry us. And there's a glimmer of it in verse 16 where the devastating question answers itself. How can I lead you like a lamb into a broad pasture? Oh, he'll lead you like a lamb. Because first he led his son like a lamb into a barren wilderness filled with hostility and temptation. Ah, he'll lead you like his lamb. Because first he led his son like a lamb into a garden of loneliness and despair. He'll lead you like a lamb. He'll bring you into the pasture of his love and his keeping because first he led his son like a lamb to a cross of offense and rejection. He'll lead you like a lamb because he led his son like a lamb through the valley of the shadow of death. And he was swallowed whole by the densest shadows in that valley only to come out the other end shining like daybreak. So now he's not just the lamb, he's the shepherd who can bring us through that same valley in safety. Jesus is the lamb who breaks our heiferdom. And Jesus is the lamb who brings us back into our lambhood. Jesus is the divorce we should eternally suffer but don't. And Jesus is the remarriage we should never enjoy but do. What I love about the gospel, even in chapters like this, what I love about the gospel that Jesus Christ loves sinners by giving all of himself for their salvation. What I love about that gospel is that it's not one dimensional. It's not thin. It's not flat. It's not binary. It's complex. And it matches all the ways that we're complex as people. It matches all the complexities of our sin and our brokenness and our unfaithfulness. The gospel can make us whole people whether we're skeptics and we've never had faith in Jesus before, but for some reason we're feeling pulled and drawn and compelled to believe Jesus. Little by little, week after week, answered question after answered question. The gospel can make us whole people if we're Christians with small and struggling and normal faith. The gospel holds out to us A wholeness that our culture has never had and will never be able to offer us. And the gospel has a wholeness to give us that the church claims to have, but doesn't much of the time because it's given up on the one thing that can bring us into wholeness. It's just too hard. It's too difficult. We're going to stuff it away in the attic and treat it like a relic. But the fully dimensional wholeness that this passage calls us to, is living between this cosmic divorce and the eternal remarriage. That's how we're supposed to live. Always between this divorce 
and the promised remarriage, as strange as it sounds, it's true. The only activity that allows us to know both truths simultaneously is repentance. Repentance is saying at the same time, you should divorce me, but please love me instead. Not because you should, but because I need you to. Repentance is a broken heart overflowing with joy. It's both. Brokenness goes with joy. You have to have both or you're only half a person. This is the emotional range of the cross. It's the emotional breath of Jesus himself mourning over our sin and at the same time overflowing with joy for his salvation. And you're supposed to have that same emotional range. Mourning for our sin is what keeps us from becoming monsters in our sin. And being overjoyed at the love of Jesus for us in our sin is what keeps God from being a monster to us in His judgment. You have to have both. They go together, and I know that's intimidating, and I know it's overwhelming because some of us don't want to mourn. We don't want to carry the broken heart around with us. But I'm telling you, mourning is good. It's grace. Mourning is actually a relief. It means my Gomer heart is being yanked out of its many prostitutions, out of its many unfaithfulnesses, I'm being pulled out of my numbness and my callousness. And the scar tissue that clogs my heart is being cut away so that I can feel again. And I can desire the righteousness that I was made for but have forgotten. And joy. Some of us don't want to walk around filled with joy. We're convinced we don't deserve it. It should be kept from us. So we play this bizarre game where we think... Maybe if I punish myself enough, I can finally work my way into joy. I can earn it for myself, but it never works. Joy isn't given in answer to punishment. It's freely given. And remember, we're talking about a remarriage here, and joy is the only thing you're supposed to bring with you to a wedding. You have no right to forfeit joy because... The joy of loving you and having you and saving you and renewing you is what drives the Savior to the act of redeeming you, the act of marrying you to Himself in the first place. Who are you to forfeit joy when a loving groom pours it out on you? It's my pleasure to tell you, glum, somber, brooding people, you have no right. It's not yours to give away. So mourn deeply and celebrate ecstatically at the same time. That's what repentance looks like. So if you're swept away by your sin, you're too far gone, you can't get your old self back, you can't get your desire for Christ back, the joy of salvation is a vapor of a memory for you. You're not that far gone yet, but you can feel yourself being carried away by your sin and your heart is closing and shutting down fast. Or if you're cold and unfeeling and loveless, 
you have nothing to give to others. Or if you do everything right, you do everything right, and yet you are eaten with frustration and anger because no one else around you can get it right with you. Or you're proud and you're arrogant and you're self-impressed, but that doesn't feel right because no one else is as impressed with you as you seem to be. Or if you're shallow and you treat all of life's problems as if they're nuisances to be whisked away with sunshiny aphorisms or buying a new pair of shoes or drinking down a flight of cocktails, or distracting yourself with entertainments. You don't see that these problems are given to us because the shepherd is guiding us with his loving hand out of our brokenness and our foolishness and our immaturities. If any of these things applies to you, or anything like these things applies to you, you need to mourn. You need the broken heart. The broken heart is the heart of Jesus admitting to the grounds of divorce. A divorce is needed here. On the other hand, if you're guilty all the time, and no matter what you do, you can't work your guilt away. You try and you try and you try, but nothing takes your guilt away. Or if you're a pretender, you're always trying to make people believe that you're something you're not, or you're a deceiver. You're always hiding for fear of being discovered. Or if you're despairing and fearful and eaten up with worry and panic and anxiety. Or if you're tired and you're losing hope, you're losing strength. Or if you feel like you can't trust the sweetness and the gentleness of the Savior. You feel like you can't be loved. Why would anybody ever love you? Or if you've forgotten the fragrance, the perfume of grace, and you wonder if you ever really knew it to begin with. You need to call yourself. You need to arouse yourself. You need to shake yourself to joy. You think for a minute that Jesus died and rose for you to go flatline? Jesus wants your heart to thunder with His joy with His overwhelming confidence and love. The heart overflowing with joy is the heart of Jesus calling for the divorce trial to stand in adjournment with a lavish wedding ceremony. The strange truth of the Gospel is that you're being sued for divorce and called to remarriage at the same time in the cross. So the soundtrack of repentance is always going to be tears and sobs broken by laughter. More tears and much more laughter. In 1857, the French novelist Gustave Flaubert published his masterpiece, Madame Bovary. It's the story of a young woman who is so discontent with the love of her husband and so disappointed with him as a man that first she makes herself a compulsive shopper and then she bounces through a series of affairs, which is fascinating for Dallasites. Don't you think that Flaubert puts those two patterns, those two behaviors together, compulsive shopping and adultery? Same motions of heart, he's saying. 
Anyway, Flaubert wrote the character of Emma Bovary so convincingly. He had so accurately captured her heart that it touched off a national controversy. Who was she? He couldn't have made this woman up. The character must be inspired on uh, an acquaintance, a familiar relationship that Flaubert has with somebody. The character of Emma Bovary was so lifelike and captured so much of the discontent of the time that hundreds of French women were coming forward and claiming to be the inspiration for Flaubert's character, even though none of them had ever met the author. And finally, he had to settle the controversy. So Gustave Flaubert publicly announced, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. Madame Bovary is me. Flaubert was confessing his own heart in the novel, not someone else's. And repentance is the freedom to mourn the awful truth of ourselves while at the same time celebrating and believing more the greater truth of what we are in Christ. I am all my discontent. I am all my unfaithfulness. I am all my prostitution. But Jesus is my ugly divorce. And Jesus is my happy remarriage. And that will make you whole. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, too often we make ourselves one-dimensional and flat and lifeless. We've made ourselves halfway people. We either mourn all the time or we try to be joyous all the time. And neither of those two things work. Both of those emotions belong to all people, but they're truly ours in the gospel of Jesus. And we pray that you would help us mourn for our sin, but not be lost in despair. Because repentance is also a heart overflowing with joy at the love of Christ. And we pray that that joy would be ours too. I can freely say my sin is awful and ugly And it is no pleasure to you. It's an offense to you. It's disaster for me and pain for my family and friends. And I can weep for my own sin. But that's not where I'm left. I'm given laughter to know. Jesus loves me with depths unimaginable and heights unseen. And the cross is where my sin is mourned in full and my joy is made full. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that that maturity would be given to me and to all of us here. And for those who have never believed, but need to be saved out of their own sin and out of their own faithlessness and their own abandoning of the God whom they didn't even know was there. For those who have not believed, give light into their hearts. Allow them to see the good news of Jesus and to take hold of him by faith 
and to find in Him the joy that exists nowhere else. And for those of us who are disciples, keep us from being so flat all the time. Keep us from being so faithless. And instead, work in us to make us the people that you would have us be. Work in us to make us people alive in the gospel of Jesus and unmistakable in it. Now as we eat and drink, Lord, give to us both tears for our sin and laughter for your love. The bread and the wine pull both from us. As we sing, let us do it with bitterness and as we sing, let us do it with gratitude and deep pleasure. And fill us once again with the good news that our sin is awful, but the love of Christ is amazing. And we who have much to mourn have much to celebrate. Give to us all of these things, and for them we will thank you.